few years ago when I was living in New Jersey, I got a text message from a friend of mine that I had been uh, in grad school with years before. And the text message was a screenshot of a text message conversation he had with his wife that morning. And it had said that his wife sent him a text that said, honey, it's April Fools. Watch out for John Wasson. <laughs> and my friend David responded to her text and said, that's OK. He doesn't live here anymore. And her response to him was, I know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, I have a, a, a knack for, uh, for jokes, for practical jokes. All that to say, if you're the kind of person that walks through April Fools with a kind of anxiety about getting tricked, uh, I'm just going to declare a truce for the next like 20 minutes or so. Uh, there's, this is a, an April Fools free zone. Uh, as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew together, uh, at least the end of the Gospel of Matthew together, uh, and explore Jesus' resurrection. All week long, we have been in this Gospel, uh, all Holy Week, following Jesus' journey to the cross. And so today, we're going to pick up at the end of the story in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, which you read with me, listening now for the Word of God to you. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guard shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go and quickly tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to the disciples. I like this part. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we are here seeking a word that only you can speak. You have our attention this morning. May we know and may we experience the joy of Easter morning together as we celebrate the living Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. This story is, uh, is about as good as it gets as far as stories go. To say that Jesus is risen from the dead means that the worst thing is not the last thing. Right? The worst thing that could happen, that did happen, was that God in the flesh was put to death, was killed at the hands of human beings. And if God's response to that is resurrection, just imagine what that could mean for our lives. As well. As the Apostle Paul put it, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died, for as in Adam all die, 
even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is good news. And I imagine that at least in part, that's why you're here today. Whether you regularly worship with us or not, you're here to hear some good news. Maybe some of you are like the women who approached the scene of the resurrection at dawn many years ago, about which we just read, distraught and in despair. Maybe you need some good news this morning. But according to Matthew, news of resurrection is also a little bit frightening. The angel tells the women not to be afraid. But I imagine uh, it's the kind of warning people use when there is actually something to be quite concerned about, right? I mean, it's like when the captain's voice comes over the cabin uh, speakers. There's nothing to be concerned about, but we're about to hit some turbulence. Do they normally say that when you hit turbulence? Like, I wasn't worried until now. Now I'm worried. When you're out on, uh, you know, enjoying some time without the toddlers and the babysitter calls and the first words they say are, everything's fine, right? Well, I had no, I had no reason to assume there was nothing that wasn't fine, uh, only to learn that they, you know, there's been a, the boys have been wrestling, the younger brother needs some stitches all of a sudden. I had no reason to be concerned about it until you said everything's fine. We know that there is something to fear because we're told that the guards are literally scared to death. And that's probably because there is an angel that looks like lightning. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that means. Right? But I do know that it sounds straightforwardly terrifying. (laughs) And even after getting over the initial shock of this angel resembling Gandalf the White, the women leave the tomb, but we're told that even though joy has, has kind of joined with their fear, the fear is still present. Which makes me wonder if the most natural response to resurrection is fear. You know, think about it. Death we, we expect. Right, 100% of us are going to die. We don't like it. It's an unwelcome intrusion into our lives. And we spend most of our time avoiding it, not thinking about it. But at least we can count on it. It's what we know. It fits into the frame that we have for our lives. Resurrection throws a wrench into everything that we know. It reframes everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, will I? And if I will be raised from the dead, if resurrection is the goal of human life and not death, then suddenly I have, to, I have to reevaluate. I have to discover an entirely new purpose and meaning for my life now, in the present. And I think that this is frightening because in order for us to discover this new life, we have to stop clinging to the old one. And sooner or later, we have to relinquish Right? All the ways that we are dependent on the things that still belong to death and therefore cannot last. And we have to commit ourselves to things that are eternal. Right? Things like love and justice and beauty and truth and worship. This is a bit frightening. And in Matthew's telling of this story, the women who first went to the tomb have a decision to make. 
Remember, they have yet to lay their eyes on Jesus. They have a decision to make. Will they believe this good news? And 2,000 years later, we have to make the same decision. The Gospels, the book of Acts, as well as history tells us that it was belief in the resurrection that created the first community of Christians. They had no, no other reason to come together, back together, as they did after they scattered, other than to say that Jesus had, had risen from the dead and that he had, had called them together. There's no other reason for it. But over the last two centuries, the resurrection has been under more scrutiny than perhaps any other time before. Modern people, people like you and me, we simply find resurrection unbelievable. Maybe you find the resurrection unbelievable. And I can sympathize. It's quite a thing to believe. It's the miracle of miracles. But what's perhaps, I think, a larger obstacle to our faith than kind of the age of modern skepticism in which we live are the attempts to make the resurrection more believable right, by, by simply spiritualizing it. A spiritual account of the resurrection is, is not so much concerned that Jesus was raised from the dead and that his disciples saw him and touched him, broke bread with him, but simply that the disciples carried on Christ's message and teaching after he died. The real resurrection, according to this theory, is that his message lives on. I read recently Easter described as the disciples coming to understand that love is stronger than death. Look, I I really don't mean to be cynical or combative here. And I'm all for trying to kind of find new ways for us to understand and speak about what it is that we believe when we say that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I agree that in many ways love is stronger than death. But do we really think that the disciples just came to a new understanding of love? Do we really think that they just became enlightened? And after they had come to this new understanding, this new enlightenment took them, this tiny band of of disciples who are utterly demoralized, utterly disgraced, scattered about. Do we really believe that this new enlightenment brought this tiny band of demoralized, disgraced, and scattered disciples and within a few years transformed them into such a power that shook the foundations of the Roman Empire. I doubt it. I mean, come on. I don't have much use for a spiritual resurrection. I don't know about you. But if the resurrection is just an allegory, then Jesus is way and Jesus' ministry is just another way that leads to death. If resurrection is just an abstract idea to convey some spiritual truth, honestly, count me out. Not in a world where disease and death steal away, my friends. Where human beings dominate one another through war and through greed, through racism and misogyny. Not where disability and mental illness pain and dis- cause pain and distress on actual bodies. What I need is resurrection. 
What I need to hear is that death loses, that life prevails, and not in the abstract, that it really prevails. And if resurrection means this, and I believe that it does, then there is hope for us all. There's hope for a future in which all will be made right, but there's also hope for the present. All right, there's transformation for us now in the present because Christ is alive. And only the living Christ can continue to minister to our broken and hurting world. Matthew tells us that the women are told to go to Galilee. Why Galilee? Why not meet him at the tomb? Galilee is the place that they've lived. It's the place where Jesus has ministered. It's the site where he healed those who were sick, where he forgave sinners, where he cast out demons, where he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the place the disciples first met Jesus, the place where he called them. It's the place that he trained them. There's nothing particularly special about Galilee except that it's very ordinary. So why does Jesus tell them to meet him there? I think Jesus returns to Galilee because as the late theologian Ray Anderson said, the resurrection means that Jesus still does stuff. Jesus still does stuff. And that there is stuff to do. Easter means that our speech about God is not limited to the past tense. Jesus is still ministering to the world even now, forgiving sinners, healing the sick, challenging the self-righteous opposing injustice, and standing in solidarity with the poor and outcasts. There is still stuff to do, and Jesus is up to it. That is the good news of Easter morning. And here's what else it means. It means that the risen Christ is waiting for each of us in the ordinary places of our lives, too. Every time we offer forgiveness to someone who has wronged us, every time we show mercy instead of spite, every time we allow the grace of God to free us from our guilt and shame, every time we confess our own self-righteousness, every time we oppose injustice, every time we cry out and weep for those whom society ignores, we are joining the risen and the living Christ in his ongoing work in the world. Matthew's gospel ends with a beautiful picture of the disciples gathered around Jesus. We're told that all of them worshipped, but some doubted. Which I think is remarkable candor on the part of Matthew, isn't it? All worshipped, but some doubted. And one might think that some of the disciples, perhaps uh, Thomas, maybe some others, still had some doubts about whether or not this really was Jesus. Had he really died? Had he really come back to life? But I don't think they doubted the miracle of the resurrection at this point. I mean, they had seen him. They had touched him. They'd eaten together. I think that they probably doubted whether or not they were up to the task of being faithful witnesses of such an event. I mean, just days before, they had denied him. They had abandoned him. There was not a disciple left around 
as Christ hung on the cross. The memory of that is not going to fade quickly. How would they be able to remain faithful to the mission now? If I were willing to bet, I would say that many of us in a room like this, on a day like today, have similar doubts. How will the story of our lives bear faithful witness to a resurrecting God, to a God who is still up to something? Indeed, in one way or another, we're going to spend the rest of our lives answering that question. That is the invitation that we get to respond to this morning. But I find it compelling that Jesus doesn't tell those with doubts that they are not worthy of the mission in front of them. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't even tell them to stop doubting. It's as if Jesus knows that there will yet be more occasions that they will fail. Instead, he gives them their mission and he leaves them with the words, remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is only the resurrected Jesus that can make such a promise. For if he had not been raised, there is no way that he could be present. My friends, the good news of Easter morning is that this promise is as true for us as it was for them. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy God, may our lives be a faithful witness to your resurrecting power that you put on display in your son, Jesus Christ, who was, though he was put to death, was raised from the dead. And the promise is that because he was raised, that he is still up to something up to something in our lives and up to something in the world. Give us eyes to see where and when we can join the work. And give us the courage to do so. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is with us and for us in all ways. Amen.